Welcome to Choosing Leadership, a podcast for high performers with big dreams and for leaders who know that they are more powerful than the level that they are currently playing. I am Sumit Gupta, your host and the founder CEO of the Deploy Yourself School of Leadership. I am here to help the best leaders get better and to help organizations massively improve their output and impact and at the same time eradicating workplace stress. Yes completely eradicating not just reducing completely eradicating i believe in creating a future and a work culture where people wait for mondays not fridays and get to do their most meaningful work the aim of this podcast is not to provide you more content but instead shift the context under which you operate this podcast is titled choosing leadership because that is what leadership is a choice In each episode I will celebrate leaders who have made such choices which are not always easy and comfortable but which has helped them get to where they are today. And let us celebrate the leader in us for choosing to move over our fears, for choosing to be motivated by something bigger than ourselves and for choosing to deal with every challenge that comes on the way. Let us celebrate you right now for stepping into the unknown and taking courageous action as those were the moments when you chose leadership at the end i will share how you can be our next guest on this podcast and with that let's get started philip is the co-founder and co-ceo at opontia based in riyadh saudi arabia in the interview philip shares his background in statistics and finance and how that allows him to be a better entrepreneur He also shares how being the youngest of five boys while growing up in his family has helped him have a high risk tolerance and also build a spirit of competitiveness in him. We also spoke about the challenges that come when a startup grows very fast like he grew his company from 0 to 100 employees in less than a year and how he likes to run to calm and clear his system of stress and pressure to be able to make sound decisions. Hi Philip, welcome to the Choosing Leadership podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Smith. It's uh, wonderful to have you here. And uh, for our listeners, can you start by sharing a little bit about who you are and what do you do? Yes, I am the co-founder, co-CEO of Pontia. And what Pontia is, we're a company that buys and then grows e-commerce brands, and we buy them in the countries we're in are. Turkey, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, UAE, and Poland. So looking to expand Central and Eastern Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Thank you. I think that's uh, that's quite a unique business model. Unique in this part of the world, there are many, um, many companies doing this business model in the US and Europe. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So before we go there, right, can you share a little bit of your backstory and how you got to where you are today? I'll try and keep it relatively brief, but... I was born in the UK and when I was young I moved to South Africa for about 5 years Cape Town I was there my father was a diplomat so that's where I moved then I was uh, moved back to the UK spent most of my until end of university there studied math at Nottingham in North England um and then I went to the US to study mathematical science at Columbia University in New York um and then for my masters and then I spent 5 years as a currency derivatives trader BNP Paribas so 2 years in Singapore 2 years in London and one year in New York from there i went to south africa to back to cape town um where i did venture capital one year immediately before going to 
back to the US to do two more masters. So I did an MBA at Wharton and an MPA at Harvard Kennedy School of Government. It's like a government degree. Um, I, during that time, I worked at Bain for a bit as a you know, summer associate. And then I, I also went back to Kenya and did some impact investing stuff there. Um, spent three months in Beijing trying to learn Mandarin, not being very far. Then I went to McKinsey in Dubai, um, where I was for almost two years, mainly working on financial work, so private equity due diligences, post-major integration, stuff like that, but also a bit of e-commerce strategy when COVID happens. Um, and then in February last year, I left McKinsey to found Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, so there are two very interesting threads here, which I want to ask you about. One is uh, how has uh, moving, even as a young son, as a young child, moving across continents, moving and living in different places, how has that shaped your views? What role does it play as an entrepreneur, as a leader? And the second is uh, like math and finance. That that seems uh, very far apart from entrepreneurship because math and finance is about control, is about predictability. And when you're doing business, when you're an entrepreneur, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of unpredictability. How do you bridge both of these? That's an interesting perspective. Um, so the math that I was doing is like hardcore statistics. And to me, statistics is the study of uncertainty in a way. Um, so I, I, I think I'd push back slightly. I'd say that statistics in particular is very linked to entrepreneurship because it's taking a whole bunch of unstructured and messy data and then trying to draw patterns from it that you can apply you know, real world solutions to. And finance, I'd say, is the essence of finance is predicting the future. So, and that I would say is also quite applicable to entrepreneurship where you're trying to predict what the next trends are going to be, how you can start a business and you tell, you know, make, make use of those trends. So, yeah, uh, but what I would say is, yeah, is, is most people who do finance, particularly, I would say, more on the M&A side of things, they're not usually the most creative and entrepreneurial people. Maybe that's where the, uh, yeah, anybody that's studied CFA or like the study, these like very hardcore finance exams, they're usually kind of risk averse people. Maybe I would say that I have an extremely high risk tolerance. Yeah. Can, can you share a bit? Yeah. Can you share a bit more? Where does the high risk tolerance come from? Also a few places. I think one of the reasons I have an extremely high risk tolerance is that I'm the youngest of five boys so, and I have an identical twin brother. So there's a pull factor. The thing that pulls me towards being risk seeking is my, I have my old, they're all older than me and they all have, they're all married with kids. So my, there's not any like pressure on me to get married and have kids and be at home. So I can move to Saudi Arabia or move to like I did recently or move to wherever. Um, and I don't have any particular constraints there. And the push factor is I'm extremely competitive with my twin brother. So if I, if it looks like I might be losing competition with my brother at any point, then I have to make change to start again. He's yeah. also the same business in Southeast Asia, but after me, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for sharing that. Can you share a bit more about like when you uh, when you were younger, especially growing up in, in a family with four siblings and also moving around uh, quite a bit, as you said, how else has that shaped your personality, your thought process? Um, I, I think growing up in a house of five boys is definitely, I would say there is 
two concepts that get ingrained in you from quite a young age. Number one is this sort of competition, um, which is like, if there's four donuts and five boys, one of the boys is not getting a donut. And so you, <laughs> you better be fast. Not that my parents didn't buy enough donuts, but get the general idea, I think. Um, and the other one I'd say is like a sort of a, a notion of what's fair and what's right. You know, if you're, especially as the youngest and of these five boys, you get quite a strong sense of what's unfair. <laughs> and, uh, I think those two things in my life now, I'd say try to be fair and transparent, but particularly, for example, now we negotiate a lot with sellers. And it's important to me that nobody feels like they're being duped or is being duped or anything like this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And now if I zoom out and focus a little bit on the future, can you share where are you headed? What's your vision for yourself and also for the organization that you're leading? Um, we are growing rapidly. So we started just under two years ago now. So about 20 months ago, we had a team of 100 people, split, you know, 25 people roughly in each of our offices. Um, my camera wasn't blurry. I'd show you around our beautiful office in the back. Um, we... Yeah, we're growing fast. We went from basically zero revenue in December last year to fifteen million dollars runway revenue this year, this month. Which is, um, I mean, yeah, I think. Um, so yeah, the plan is just to carry on growing. We're raising a Series B now, hiring more people. As soon as we've done that, building out a tech team, expanding to more countries, maybe launching in Egypt, Nigeria, Pakistan, few other countries. Yeah, and what are you really trying to create or change? Like, what about it? Is that what you deeply care about or what matters to you? We are building a house of e-commerce brands that consumers love. So that's our mission. The create brands that consumers, particularly in our region, um, love and identify with. So tons of these e-commerce aggregators, they buy brands in Pakistan and selling mainly in the U.S., we particularly focused on consumers in our regions, so we're trying to build digitally native brands for for people, you know, for in Saudi for Turkish people, for Polish people. Um, and I think that's a differentiator and something we're excited about. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's one aspect, and the other aspect is um, right now, you know, we're really enabling the e-commerce ecosystem at the actually entrepreneurial ecosystem because many founders. They build these brands without realizing that there's actually not very much. You, you, they think that they can get VC investment or they can sell it, but actually, in our market, with any people buying brands. So what we do is we you know, give the founder uh, upfront payment for their brand when they want to exit, which when they want to leave the brand, which happens you know to everybody upfront usually. Um, but then we actually give them some share in the growth in profit after we've given after we bought the brand. So. You know, over the following few years, we give them some share in the growth. We, with all of our expertise, we try and turbocharge the growth of the brands. Um, so we bring to it our logistics, operations, pricing, sourcing, brand management, product development, design, cross-border, all of the things we can do to help. Yeah. And as you shared uh, your journey, like from last uh, December to now, which is, uh, which is as in your own words, right, quite impressive growth. And uh, many times, uh, like startup, doing a startup or entrepreneurship by itself is challenging, but many times growth can also present some new challenges, right? So can you share 
a bit more about that growth journey, especially a fast growth journey, and what challenges does it produce for you now, or maybe even going yeah. ahead into the future? Growing fast is stressful, but it's also very exciting. So I sometimes describe, particularly like the first year, where so we went from zero to hiring two people, many people in a year. Um, it feels a bit like, have you ever like missed your alarm for work and you like wake up because the sun's up and then in school or in college or whatever, and then you realize you're like two hours late for work and you start, you're like running to the door and as you're running to the door, you're like brushing your teeth and you're trying to, trying to eat cornflakes and you're trying to put your trousers on. <laughs> so pretty much the entire first year of a blitz scaling startup feels exactly like that the entire time. Good <laughs> Yeah, it is it's stressful, but also pretty like exhilarating fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, yeah, stuff is like broken eminently. I mean, for example, like we should, most companies, you know, most companies with 100 people have like a proper onboarding process and everybody comes in and has their role defined and has OKRs and been rebuilding all this. We're putting it all in place, but um, people who join with us, so tell them like we're the fastest growing company ever in the Middle East. You're not joining a thing that has a clearly defined role. You're coming to help build it with us and make it what it you know what it will be. Yeah. And for you personally, right? How do you manage that uh, like rush or that excitement? Because you are also responsible for a lot of uh, decisions. You are also responsible now like for hundred people. So you still have to maintain your balance. You still have to maintain your sanity when it comes to talking to people, listening to people, building relationships, and then taking those critical decisions. How do you manage all of that pressure and overwhelm? Uh, I mean, when I can, I try and run. <laughs> so if I have a, I would say I have like slightly mag depressive tendencies, which is when uh, things more on the mania side, to be honest, than on the depression side. But like, and then when I get an idea and like if we're doing it, if we get attention and fundraising or if something extremely good happens, I know it's usually followed by like a depressive, like a depressed day. So what I do is I try and run on the day that I'm having the mania so that it kind of clears my system of all these like endorphins and whatever. Um, but it's hard to find time often. But like oftentimes at like 3 a.m., if it's particularly like, crazy thing that's happening at work at 3 a.m. Uh, I'll like run hard because it like is mostly stressful moments. Definitely the most stressful stuff is people stuff. Like you have to, you know, let go of people that were never right fit or when you have um, internal disputes or these types of things. Yeah. yeah which doesn't happen but that's, that's why the most stressful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that because I was interviewing another founder very recently and they shared something very similar that for them, uh, long distance cycling is their drug, right? To really keep exactly the same words, to let it out of your system, let it flow, and then come back to a state of sanity or a balance where you let you basically are able to take those decisions, even amidst all of that care. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, probably the worst one, but the one that I maybe sometimes do is uh, go drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Like if you go drinking, it's quite fun for a day and then it's terrible for about a week after. <laughs> At least maybe because I'm getting old. So yeah. Like because I live in Saudi Arabia, it's quite often that I'll go for two months without drinking. Yeah. 
Yeah. And as, as you do that, right, as you meet people from different walks of life, this is quite an unusual lifestyle. Like the lifestyle of an entrepreneur is anyways quite unusual. And it has huge demands uh, from you. Is there something which people get wrong about you, misunderstand about you when, like in, in a normal walk of life, inside or outside of work? Uh, me as a person or me as like an entrepreneur? Or meets, uh, I mean, yeah, you, you as a person, you as a leader. To be honest, I found myself becoming slightly like disengaged. I think I used to meet strangers and be able to spark a conversation quite quickly but now my mind is usually so i know this is like a terrible thing to say because everybody has their own stuff going on but like my mind is usually so like consumed that somebody if i'm sitting next to somebody and they try to spark up a conversation i'm like and like oh hey what'd you do i'm like oh yeah, I did. and uh like I'd, I'd rather just like i feel myself becoming like more boring i don't know um but yeah, besides that, I wouldn't say much. It's changed. Yeah. 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 I understand that. Yeah. And are, are you doing something about it or are you okay with that? I'm okay with it for now because like, because it was, I don't have the energy for, for it, for it otherwise. I hope it doesn't continue. Like I hope if I, you know, in 10 years time, if, I, you know, if I'm no longer doing this for some reason, if we've sold it or whatever, I hope I can get my energy to a new conversation back. Yeah. Uh, can you share uh, something about yourself, uh, maybe personal, which most people do not? Uh, some people know, but like, I'm quite into stand-up comedy and podcasts. Like, I do stand-up comedy and I do podcasts. I do like a... Intending to be comical podcast with my mate, um, and I've done stand up in the US and in Dubai, but I don't really have time for it now. But yeah, and does that uh, does that play a role in your day to day life as well? Like humor, especially with stand up comedy, humor does that uh, add anything to your day to day conversation? I would say I'm not the most naturally funny person, to be perfectly frank. I can write an extremely good stand-up comedy set, but in my day-to-day -day life, particularly at work, I'm fairly unamusing. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, yeah. But what, what stand-up comedy does do for you in a professional setting is it makes you about 500 times better at public speaking. I, would, I was not particularly a good public speaker before, but I am now... Really, um, yeah, that, that, I would highly recommend anybody who's ever considered doing a stand-up comedy course where you have to do it at the end of the course. And you can do this like ten thing. I didn't do that, but like I would highly recommend. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and again, I asked you because uh, a lot of the people I talk to are very busy. And yet they have a, either a sports or a creative hobby or practice. And one thing which it does, especially as we spoke about, like releasing that pressure. But I think another thing which I also listen is it helps you stay light or keep a sense of humor about yourself sometimes with uh, having a different perspective. And that, though that doesn't change anything what you do, it just makes the process more lighter, more fun. And you can relax and laugh about it. Do you see something like that? Does that help you? creating a distance uh, from what you're doing, maybe yeah. take things slightly? Maybe, but I don't do stand-up now. I, the only thing I do is like once every 
six months i do like a, i record a podcast with my mm-hmm. uh my co-podcast host guy called rami al Kadi. um that yeah that does break the it breaks the flow of like thinking about work all the time yeah uh, yeah you know, it's and like that, no other hobbies or anything which is the way i like it like I, i'm I've always been either I'm doing this or I'm not, and right now I'm doing this, which means that's all I'm doing. Um, and then if I stop and I do something else, then that will all be the thing that I'm doing. Yeah. And you progress much faster, and it's much more satisfying to progress faster than something if you just go all in. Mm-hmm. I can't do an hour a week of trying to learn French. Like, if I'm going to learn French, I'm going to move to France. I'm going to learn French. That's all I'm going to do. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for adding that. And before before we wrap this up, right? So if uh, anybody who is listening has a dream or has a vision for starting a company or becoming an entrepreneur, but they are stuck, they are stuck for some reason, right? What what would be one or two pieces of advice that you would give them? You can hack this whole entrepreneurship game. It, it doesn't need to be as hard as it looks. Um, particularly the idea, it, like. I'm 100% sure that if I were to stop doing this now, there's like 50 other ideas that I could build a decent business with, um, which I didn't, know, which I didn't have before doing this. Like before this, I was like, you really need this like spark of inspiration, and you need to be like the Airbnb guys who basically, I mean, that's like the sort of extremely novel at the time thing that just took off. Um, don't need to be novel particularly. Um, to be an entrepreneur you need to find you need to just tweak an idea to fit a new context and you can make a massive business out just tweaking ideas to fit. either to fit a new geography or to fit a new customer segment or to fit a new um, yeah 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 and can you share a bit more about that right because uh, like, uh, startups or entrepreneurship anyways is a uh, if you see the numbers, it's a game of uh, losers. It's not a game of uh, winners. What gives you that confidence to say that uh, you can hack this or you can uh, like you can really strategize and win at it? I'll tell you exactly how. If I had to start another company again, and I wanted, if I wanted to make a unicorn in five years, this is what I would do. If I was based in the Middle East, which I am right now, I would get a list of all companies in the U.S. that became a unicorn in the last that was founded less than. No, all companies that became a unicorn last year in the US that was founded less than three years ago. Let's say less than five years ago. Founded less than five years ago, became a unicorn in the US in the last year. That list is probably, I would say, 100 companies long, maybe. Okay, 2022 was a bad year, but let's say 2021. Then from that list, I would filter by all companies that... Actually, no, I would, re- I would rank them all by how applicable they are in the Middle East. Then I would take the top 20 of those and re-rank them by how many competitors they have already doing the business model in the Middle East. And then from the, or no, let's say the top 10, re-rank them by how many competitors. Then I would take the top three. I would pick whichever one I like think is the most interesting personally. I would make a pitch deck. I would send it to every VC in the Middle East. Well, they first get a co-founder who has some domain expertise. And I reckon I would have $2 million of VC funding within a week. 
And then from there, you can just go. Like then you, I mean, you know, obviously, so, I mean, it helps now that, um, you know, like it helps having some experience um, in business and VC and other stuff. Uh, but like, this is like the VCs in the region that they're not like trying to back the next super innovative thing. Like they're just trying to, you, you can just tweak a business model, make it applicable to your project. Yeah. Yeah. And is that learning a result of the last uh, 20 months that you started uh, your own company? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, all the big companies in the Middle East are just essentially clones of US companies like Kareem, which is the last big unicorn here, is a clone of Uber. Angami, which raised the $500 million valuation on NASDAQ, is a clone of Spotify. Um, like, you're not reinventing Europe. Like, Rain is a copy of Coinbase. Um, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. Like, yeah, obviously why you would bother trying to come up with some super innovative business model when there's so many good business models that work that are not in the Middle East already. And if you're doing this, you know, let's say you're doing this in the US, I mean, you could do the same thing with Chinese uniforms and you try and make them work in the US or do it with a different customer segment. So, or do it with a different, you know, like there's a reason why in a pitch deck it always says, Stuff like we're Uber for, uh, we're Uber for delivery drivers, or we're this for that. Because everybody's doing the same thing. They're just tweaking these, like, the successful ones. That's usually what they are. Like, uh, Facebook was MySpace for college kids. And it's not like rocket science. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for yeah. adding. Yeah. The reason you want to get the ones that have already become unicorns is because they've basically proved that the business model is investable, at least. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think um, I think what what I also see is uh, a lot of founders being lost with what to do, and what you're sharing is that if you can deconstruct that from seeing what others are doing, and then apply it in different contexts. So if, even if they are not successful, they become very useful experiments for you to try and adapt to see what what is working in your market with your product, uh, because many times these practices are hidden, like within industries or within companies itself. And they're not really taken and then copied or adapted to to different uh, markets. And there is a lot of value in what somebody is doing well. Uh, so in a way, you can never be lost for ideas because if you go looking, you can always see something which you can tweak to your context and then practice at least apply it and as an experiment and then learn from that. Yeah, I one hundred percent agree. Perfect. Uh, yeah. So before my point is that like I think it's like a, like being an entrepreneur is like hackable. I don't think it's like you need um, to be some like uber genius to act out being like. Yeah, yeah, and I think this connects back to where we started, right? With finance and maths and statistics. Uh, yes, that there are a lot of uncertainties, but by applying these uh, these uh, like disciplines, you're actually trying to reduce them, and you're trying to create a pathway where others cannot, maybe probably cannot see, but you can see now, and you can predict, and you can control for some of those variables. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So for anybody who is listening, who wants to reach out, who wants to find out more what you are up to, what's the best way for them to do so? I can be contacted at uh, on LinkedIn. I'm extremely active on LinkedIn. I'm not. Yeah, maybe you can message through. I'm considering whether I should get my email address out. <laughs> I'll find out. I'll give it a <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you, Philip, for sharing your thoughts and your views. Uh, I will make sure I include your LinkedIn uh, in the show notes. Uh, maybe the email I will leave that out <laughs> to prevent a lot of spamming. But anybody, yeah, anybody who is listening can reach out to you through the email as well. And yeah, I wish you all the best for everything that's ahead for you. Thank you very much. Thanks yeah. for taking time to interview. Thank you. It was wonderful having you.